Coming up, a noir crime story with a supernatural spin. A first-hand account of modern Washington, D.C. Plus our distraction of the week. I'm Mel. I'm Dave. This is the Library of Lost Time. Today we've got a special guest coming in to do a distraction of the week. I would say a very special guest with a capital V and a capital S. Ann Bogle is going to talk to us. The fabulous Ann Bogle from What Should I Read Next podcast and ModernMrsDarcy.com and the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club and all things wonderfully bookish. She's one of our favorite people. She's also like the reason Apple has the books podcast subcategory, I think. (laughs) She is very good at what she does. She is very good. So Anne will be here in a few minutes to share her distraction of the week. And in the meantime, we've got two new books. Mel, what have you got? In the late 1990s, when we lived in San Francisco and worked at a website development agency, we had the great gift of working with a writer named Richard Cadry. Yeah. Even then, he was like a billion times cooler than we could ever be. Sure. And that has only gotten more so in the years in between. Yeah. He's a novelist. He's a really talented photographer. And he has a band. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Awesome. He's probably best known for his 12-book series about Sandman Slim. These books are so much fun. They star a demon hitman who has escaped from hell and is now getting into misadventures in Los Angeles. Yeah, if you like the premise, definitely check them out. They're really fun. It's this very supernatural world with a strong noir vibe. It's like a roller coaster ride, and then bam, you're suddenly deep into your feelings. He's really good at imbuing his undead characters with a ton of humanity. Which brings me to his new novella, The Pale House Devil. When the story opens, we meet a pair of assassins named Ford and Newland. Ford is alive, and his partner Newland is undead. Oh. It quickly becomes clear that these two are very loyal to each other, and despite the fact that they murder people to make a buck, they have a strong moral center. They're also charming. I don't know how Richard Cadry pulls that off, but he does. Their hit job in Manhattan goes sideways, Hmm. and they're forced to go on the run to California, where they're hired for another shady job. (laughs) Snappy dialogue and uncanny hijinks are afoot, including chapters written from a monster's point of view. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. They're surprisingly poignant, too. Even monsters get sad, apparently. (laughs) I read this book in a two-day frenzy. Richard is a master of comedy horror. He's got a real gift for making the occult unsettling and giddy fun. You can read an excerpt from the book at crimereads.com, so I'll put a link in show notes. But honestly, just go ahead and get yourself a copy, grab your favorite Halloween candy, and go on a caper with Ford and Newland. It's The Pale House Devil by Richard Cadry. I should also mention, because he has too much creativity for one brain, he also has another book that came out this month. Wow. Yeah. He's just showing off now. Yeah. It's called The Dead Take the A-Train. It's an urban fantasy set in a magical version of New York, and he wrote it with the Malaysian horror writer Cassandra Kaw. Oh, cool. One review called it an enchanting introduction to a magical bitch on wheels. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sold. If you've ever wondered what it's like to be caught in the storm of our recent history, Martin Barron could tell you. Martin Barron is an American journalist and an editor. If you saw the movie Spotlight about the investigative news team at the Boston Globe, he was part of that story. I love that movie. Yeah. Oh, I love a good movie about reporters getting to the truth. And there's a little bit of vengeance. (laughs) Literary vengeance. 
In that film, Martin Barron was played by Lee Schreiber. He's the somewhat cold editor who shows up and convinces the team to go after the Catholic Church. That movie went on to win the Oscar for Best Picture in 2015. And as good as that movie was, that might not be Martin Barron's best story. Wow. Yeah. Barron worked at the Boston Globe for about a decade after the events in that movie. And then he went on to work as the executive editor of the Washington Post. Seven months after he started there, which I imagine is right about the time he was starting to settle in, the paper was sold. It went from the Graham family, who'd owned it for 80 years, into the hands of Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder. Mm -hmm. And that was in late 2013. And it wasn't long after that when Donald Trump announced he was running for president. And that started his long, contentious relationship with the press and specifically with the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Martin Barron retired in 2021. He wasted no time writing a book about what it was like to be in the middle of all of that. The book is called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. There's also an audio book. The narrator is the man who played Barron in Spotlight, Leave Schreiber. Oh, cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah. If you're curious about the life of one of the great newspaper editors of our time, Collision of Power is out now. And now our distraction of the week. We are sitting here with Ann Bogle. Hi, Ann. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's so great to talk to you all. It's great to see you and a pleasure to have you. I understand you have a distraction of the week for us. Oh my goodness. Yes, I do. My distraction of the week is reading cookbooks like they are novels, preferably with a glass of wine or a cup of tea, preferably on the couch. It doesn't have to be past your bedtime, but that's an especially fun time to do it. (laughs) Um, This is my favorite thing to do. And I got to tell you, oh, I was just going to say, I really love to get them from the library because then they're, now they're free. They used to be cheap back when my library assessed fines, because then I'd only owe several dollars, <laughs> but my library abolished fines. So now I don't owe anything. I have a stack of three Alice in Roman cookbooks out from the library right now. I cannot even, oh my gosh, you know why? You don't know why. No. Can I tell you? Why? Please. It's because we got back from our trip to, in part, France and Spain in part with you. And I, someone sent me an Alison Roman Substack newsletter where she said, look, I can't have the great Euro trip that everyone else seems to be having this summer, but I can recreate that on my back porch by having a Moro hour. So let's make spritzes and put out snack trays. She was emphatic that this is not girl dinner. This is something different. <laughs> and I thought, Well, I did have my big Euro trip and I got to see Mel and Dave on my Euro trip and I'm interested in carrying those vibes over. So I just ate up that newsletter, bought my bottle of Aperol at the wine store for the first time, made my European snacks and then went to get her cookbooks. So I love everything about that. Yeah, that is genius. And that's one of my one of the things that I love to do with Strong Sense of Place is share recipes, because I think between the food and a great book and an appropriate drink you are transported there as much as you can be without physically going there. Yes. And that's something I love about reading these cookbooks. And I do say reading because, I mean, I love the joy of cooking. I learned in part 
in large part, how to cook from the joy of cooking, but the essay recipe ratio is not where I want it to be. I I want the cookbooks that have like lengthy stories about how the recipe came to be and how you drank it off the coast of something or how you dug your fire pit to make it somewhere exotic that I've never (laughs) been to, but would like to imagine going to. Yes. Mm -hmm. I want to hear the stories. And also I love how with a cookbook, you can choose where you want to escape to. I don't know. I think people think about cookbooks as being practical, but for me, sometimes they're like, uh, science fiction. Somebody could make that. (laughs) It's not going to be me. Maybe that could happen. Never in my kitchen. Yeah. In fact, I did this a little bit when we were preparing for our trip. I got cookbooks from London, not so much, but from France and Spain. So I could just like immerse myself in the culture, but on my couch with full color photos. Yes. The photos. There's this category of cookbooks that are like travelogues, right? Like they go there and they take the amazing photos of the street markets and the people in addition to the recipe photos. And I feel like those are, they're Strong nice armchair travel. of place. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes I am inspired to get up off my couch and make some of the recipes in the cookbooks. So then I get to engage my senses even more by actually getting to taste, see, feel, touch. So I have a question for you. When you do that, are you picking like what I call a project recipe where you have to buy a lot of special ingredients and maybe it's a little more complicated than the kind of thing you would usually do? Or are you picking a simple recipe that will give you a taste of what it's like without being a lot of extra work in the kitchen. This depends so much on my season of life. I'm not talking years. I'm talking about like my micro season. Sure. Lately, I know nobody will relate to this (laughs) in your entire listening audience. Lately, I've been a little (laughs) tired, worn out and um, over. Yeah. That's yeah, weird. it's this weird thing where you have more to do than the amount of time you have to do it in. <laughs> Never experienced that. Don't know what you're talking that about. That just sounds like poor planning. Yeah. <laughs> so it, there is definitely a mindset that I can go to. And sometimes it is when I'm overburdened. Who speaks Enneagram? I'm a nine. Sometimes you just got to put your head in the sand and like mm-hmm. make the, oh gosh, You had a couple recipes in Well-Fed that I thought of for my cooking skills at the time as project recipes. Mm -hmm. And there was this one, it was, was it Korean short ribs? I think you might be talking about the five spice pork ribs. Whatever it was, it was delicious. We still cook from that cookbook all the time, Mel. Just got to say the cumin carrots. We do too. Oh my gosh. So amazing. (laughs) But sometimes I feel like this is what I need to go on with my life. You all make podcasts, you write books, like those are ephemeral. Sometimes you need to, to like make something you can taste and see and touch. I mean, I can tell you what I made for my latest cookbook deep dive over the weekend. I hollowed out grapefruit and oranges to make little bowls that could hold sorbet that I purchased at the grocery store. Wow. And then I put little mint sprigs on top. There was zero cooking involved. Just a lot of audiobook listening. Oh my gosh. They were the cutest. They were adorable. And all my kids who were home for the weekend and all their friends were like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And I was just like, (laughs) I know. And then I made little brown butter chocolate chip shortbread to go with it. Oh, that sounds really good. So there was actual baking involved, but no, that's not a project by non-burnt out standards. (laughs) (laughs) But it's all relative. 
When I'm looking through one of those beautiful cookbooks, I always look at the salads and the condiments because I figure you can just take a boring piece of chicken, but put some other nationalities condiments on it and make it taste really good because then you can get the flavors of the place in like 20 minutes. And something I like about this approach is it's so versatile. Ooh, and also so souvenir applicable. If you are willing to lug a $40 cookbook home on an airplane or in the back of your car, then you can have that memento that you remember the exact place and time you got it. You can cook from it. You can spatter all over it, but I'm supposed to be selling this. I'm not supposed to be. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be making you remember why, uh, how easy it is to mess up a nice cookbook. So there are classics of this genre, like Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child. Mm-hmm. Um, they're contemporary ones I really enjoy that explore cultures that I feel more of a foreigner to. Like I love the writing of Michael Twitty. Kosher Soul is his new one where he talks about being a black Jewish cook and he cooks from his um, African roots and his Jewish heritage and writes about all of it, which I love. Yum. That sounds so good. Oh, it's so good. It's so much fun. I don't think I've made a single recipe, but I so enjoy like reading the stories and seeing what I could make and seeing what he makes. But also we went to London this summer and in the course of our trip planning, I talked to and read about all these people who were in love with the Adelungi restaurants. Mm-hmm. And there are so many options in that direction. And I especially like Jerusalem. Yes. I love that book. I would love to go. I've read a lot of books Mm. set there and set in that general area. And I just love going through the family favorite recipes, the classics and the, like they show pictures of the street food and the markets and just like, it just looks so vibrant. Like the Jerusalem streets pictured in this book. It makes me very happy. His hummus recipe is very good. And the number one tip I took away from that is that when you're making hummus, you should let the food processor go for like two to three times as long as you think you want to listen to it going, because that's what makes the hummus really light and fluffy and smooth. So sometimes I just turn on the food processor and leave the kitchen. I can't do that because we lost a little piece. Our food processor only works if I put in a stainless steel pointy stick thing and like hold it in place. (laughs) That sounds dangerous, but okay. <laughs> I think I think it looks safer than it sounds. I hope. I think you'd approve if you were standing in my kitchen. But mm, I, I don't think I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll send you my address so you know where to send my new cuisine art. But do you all have a favorite cookbook along these lines? I do. One of the books I talked about on our Thailand episode is Thai Street Food by David Thompson. Yes, please. And it is enormous. Like you could use it as a weapon and really do some damage to somebody (laughs) if you clonk them over the head with it. It's huge. The photography, it's almost like a photography book with recipes in it. Although the recipes are very, very good. And there are lots of essays that kind of give context to everything because it's so focused on street food. He talks about how the street markets change throughout the different day parts and kind of what foods are eaten at different times of the day and what kind of people are there and what the energy is. So like in the morning, it's much different than it is, say, at the after work time when people are picking up food to maybe take home is really fascinating because it gave you a picture of what some part of Thai culture is like. And that was really fun addition to the kind of like personal essays and history that you usually get in these kind of cookbooks. 
That sounds amazing. And it made me really want to go there. Although I think as an introvert, a Thai street market would be really overwhelming and I would have to have somebody hold my hand and take me through. And then I would need like a massive nap afterwards. <laughs> uh, no, that doesn't sound like a bad day. No, it sounds like a pretty great day, actually, <laughs> now that I've said it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have one, Dave? The one that came to my mind when we started talking about this was a book that you talked about in our New Orleans episode called Turkey and the Wolf, yes. which is a cookbook from a restaurant of the same name in New Orleans. The founder of that restaurant, uh, Mason Herford, is what he's done is he's taken street food and sort of junk food from that area and elevated it. So he has like a famous meatloaf sandwich and uh, like an Italian-American sandwich. And the fried bologna. And the fried bologna. <laughs> it has salt and vinegar chips on the sandwich. Yeah. With yeah. the fried bologna. And all of that makes me feel like somebody could wake me up in the middle of the night and be like, hey, we're going to Turkey and the Wolf. And I'm like, let me put on my shoes. You know? <laughs> but yeah. So this conversation makes me want to go all the places, which feels very appropriate. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and now I feel like really hungry too. <laughs> Visit strongsenseofplace.com slash library for more on cookbooks with a strong sense of place, plus all the other books we discussed today. Thanks for joining us in the Library of Lost Time. Remember to visit your local library and your independent bookstore to lose some time yourself. Stay curious. We'll talk to you soon.